As we have studied repentance together, I have been deeply burdened, uh, knowing that my approach has left some unexplored issues uh, that are important about hardship and complexity, especially in mutual sinfulness. I, I know that I, as I have set forth a, a vision of a penitent people, that I have advocated for a deep, explicit repentance that applies honestly foremost to what might, yeah, we might not ideally call everyday sin, uh, the readiness to repent to a radical and, and forthright level, uh, fifth standard types of selfishness and mistreatment we give one another sort of on a daily basis in expected situations. Our, our bitterness at family, a family member's failure to clean up after themselves or, or to help how we think they ought or to speak with the kindness that we think they should have, these things are in some ways easily regretted and apologies should not be overly difficult even if they damage our pride. Church life doesn't always exist in normalities, though as all will at least know someone who has been guilty of or victim of more heinous sins. And that, of course, prompts very difficult questions about our understanding of repentance. If, as we saw last week, our troubles often result from our sin, are we simple, are we, and it's a legitimate question, are we simply to endure silently through immense hardship under others' sin? And so although I want to be really unflinching in admonishing you to repent for snapping at your family if dinner is ready late or for begrudging your husband if he forgot to empty the bin or fix the shelf. On the other hand, I feel I have to address the complex side of repentance that comes in thinking about if and how sinners should repent when they are victim to other people's heinous sin. And Psalm 143 helps us contemplate repentance as we experience the harshest treatment from enemies, friends, and even family. This psalm is both David's expression of repentance and a cry for help in dire times. Those who mistreated him were beyond wrong. It's inexcusable, and that should not be questioned, and were acting wickedly. And David's reaction helps us think through how we should view similar times. I I really pray that not all of you will personally face such situations of affliction, but I still hope this is useful as you might even be helping people you know as they endure trial. And so the main point is that repentance does not mean that we do not seek help in suffering. Repentance doesn't mean that we don't seek help in suffering. And I have eight observations and applications today. Uh, They are not all as long as a normal sermon point, so don't fret. So the first one is the context helps. Context helps. So unlike a lot of psalms, 
we have some indications why David wrote this one. Namely, there, there is a long tradition, including the headings in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And to sort of explain what this is, one of the more famous aspects of David's life is his adultery with Bathsheba, which then led him to murder her husband. And in 2 Samuel 12, which we read, God sent Nathan to show David his sin. And in verses 10 to 12, he promised earthly curses upon David's life and family because of it. And I'll read those to you here. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And, and we know from Second Samuel 15 to 18 that David's son Absalom turned against his father and wreaked havoc on the households. And David fled Jerusalem and went on the run from his own son. And Psalm 143 is then traditionally thought to be David's reflection during, or at least about, that time when he was on the run. Uh, There are important aspects of this text that then guide our thought about repentance. So the second thing, second aspect to note, is David did repent. Even as he was being afflicted. David did repent. Verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant. For no one living is righteous before you. Commentators categorize this as a psalm of repentance. And we see David's opening line is a cry for mercy. Which he followed with the acknowledgement that he is not righteous before God. He did not want God to assess him on his works because he was sinful. If David wrote the song because of his experience running from his murderous son, then here David acknowledged how his sin was the long-term cause of that hardship. In verses 1 and 2, David did repent of that. Third thing, this was real hardship. So just because David's sin, he recognized it as a cause in this hardship does not change, does not change that it was an evil situation. Verses three and four. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness Like those long dead, therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. So even if, even if, which is not always the case, even if we have some blame in our suffering, that does not change the fact that evil things are happening to you. And that evil people, or at least people behaving wickedly, are doing them. So it, if we, if we have reason to repent, that does not undermine the fact that true evil 
has befallen us. It does not dilute that fact in the least. Fourth thing, David shouldn't have endured this hardship. David should not have endured this hardship. Even though David's sin was the long-term cause, so he was responsible for this hardship, still David did not do anything to deserve Absalom to treat him this sort of way. He had not provoked Absalom so fiercely that he should want to murder his father. David had long since repented of the sins that brought this about and had endeavored to live faithfully. Verses 5 and 6, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched wind. Despite David's prior actions, Absalom acted wrongly and wickedly. And that is an objective fact. Five, David called for help. David called for help. Just because David knew that his past sins had brought this about did not mean that he did, that he had to endure evil passively and silently. So just because David saw that he had some responsibility did not mean that he just sat and endured evil that came upon him. The context tells us that when his murderous son sought his life, David fled. The scripture does not seem to condemn how David took himself to safety. So verses 7 to 10. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. May know the way I should go, for to you I love my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. So, so David rightly took himself to safety and also cried for God's rescue. And yet, even as David cried for help against his tormentors, he also ordered his army not to kill, but to deal gently with Absalom. Second Samuel 18.5 When Absalom was killed, David grieved immensely. And so, even as we endure evil, we should hope for renewal and reconciliation, if it be possible. Removing ourselves from evil and crying for God to take action against our aggressors does not mean that we do not hope for restoration when the context of those evils is our relationship with those whom we cannot or should not easily break ties. Six, David sought clearer and deeper holiness. Even though David knew that his opponents, his family, 
acted evilly towards him and knew that he needed to remove himself from that situation and seek God's help against his enemies. He also knew that he was not totally beyond falling into sin himself in that situation and so called for God's help in making sanctified decisions. So we just read verses 7 to 10. And there David asked, Make me know the way I should go. For to you I lift my soul. And later, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. So so despite how heinous sin was being inflicted upon David, he did not assume that everything he did would be correct. He did not take the affliction he endured as free license to do and say whatever he wanted. He did not think that his suffering through rampant sin from others' hands meant that he was excused for anything that he had done or might do. David knew that he needed God to guide him to walk in accordance with God's law. Now here's the thing. I think, I think too many people today think that seeking God's will means discerning the exact person we should marry or, or the job we should take. But the Bible speaks of seeking God's will as needing instruction and help uh, in the very things that God has already revealed. God has said what his law is as he built it into creation, summarized it in the Ten Commandments, and re-explained it in the New Covenant Scriptures. And as good as it is to, to want divine assistance in the particulars of our own life, the Bible is in, infinitely more emphatic about our need for help simply in learning and keeping the foundational principles of God's law. David knew that. We see it here. And knew that in troubled times, as is so much the case with us, we need even more help to know how to keep God's law. So often when we find ourselves in trouble, we default to doing whatever we think is right, right on the surface. And David knew he needed help to keep God's law as he endured trial. Seven. Repenting when others sin against us. If and how. This is where we start to see how this hashes out. In times when we are in turmoil and trouble, even when it results from our own sin, as David's situation was the long-term result of his adultery with Bathsheba, we we still have to admit our faults and acknowledge that we need God's guidance during that affliction. We can grow overconfident that we know what is right, which leads us to trust our initial gut feeling about if we are right or wrong in a situation which is an unwise thing to do. David, however, knew that he needed God's instruction and leading even about what holiness is and looks like during his affliction. 
He knew he was sinful, and so he distrusted his heart. And we need to search ourselves and at least allow for the possibility that we need correction. We should always be pursuing deeper repentance, assuming that we have perhaps deceived ourselves in some way. And that becomes really difficult as we face real-world wickedness. So, I mean, we can think just, I mean, sort of day-to-day life, being in the office, uh, perhaps someone is mocking us or shouldering work onto us that we shouldn't have to be doing, mistreating us in some way. And we are, and it becomes overwhelming and it is an affliction. We have to ask, what is our heart towards that person? Have I done something? Have I failed in my work? Have I in the past mistreated them? We long for them to stop doing that. Did we even confront that and don't consider ourselves necessarily to blame for their sin? But is there a way we need to repent before God? But then we can ratchet that complexity up a lot, can't we? And we know that there are immensely difficult situations in the world. So I I recently heard a really tragic story about sort of friends of a friend. Uh, They're married, and she repeatedly commits adultery, and he is abusive. Right? It is easy for both of them to, to blame the other for their sin. She could say she's unfaithful because he is immensely and sinfully cruel. He could say that he is cruel because she is unfaithful. In the end, they are both doing wicked things and responsible to repent before God for their own sin, even if another is grievously sinning against them. We are, in the end, responsible for our own sin. Action, I mean, yeah, action, I think, has to be taken in some measure against both parties, and yet both should bring themselves in outrage before God himself because of their own sin. But what about when the sides are not equally heinous? I saw an interview where a man, a married man, confessed that he was addicted to illicit online material. And then they had his wife confess that she sinned by spending too much time with her friends. And they described this as if this was a a mutually equal uh, struggle, as if she even contributed to his sin. And I don't, I don't know them personally. 
But on the surface, I'm not willing to categorize that equally. This man subjected her to unfaithfulness through his computer use, and it is up to him to repent of his heinous crime. Our Catechism 83 does say that some sins are more heinous than others. And we need to place liability squarely upon that party in situations like this. And if, still, she had some, underlining if, if she had some transgression in this, she ought to confess that before God. But, but not as if that means that she shared this blame in his sin when he has so grievously sinned against her. That is not the case. She is responsible if she sinned, but she is not to blame for his. We all do have to take personal responsibility. I mean, that is, that's sort of the idea running here, isn't it? Personal responsibility. We all have to take personal responsibility for our actions and quit shoveling them off as if they are the product of communal and relational imperfections. They come out of the fact that we are evil and depraved and that we rebel against God. Number eight, standing before Christ. So there's a straightforward twofold application or twofold connection to Christ from this psalm. Verses 11 and 12. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. So David cried for rescue here. And he announced that God will deal with his enemies. So then, if if you are committing heinous sin and inflicting suffering upon others and you refuse to repent, refuse to repent because you love your sin, then you need to know that Christ, the Son of God, will return to judge the world. And if you have refused to repent, if you will not turn away from your adultery, if you will not stop abusing your spouse, if you love to subject others to wickedness in any sort of way, then Christ comes to destroy you and will destroy you over and over and over and over for eternity. Because you love your sin. As much pain as you have divvied on to others, your torment in hell will be infinitely worse forever. But you could repent. You could take hold of the Savior who died on the cross because you are that sinful. 
All the wrath that God would dispense on you for eternity would be swallowed up in Christ's cross if you would seek him for forgiveness. The gospel offer is before you now if you would trust in Christ for salvation. And on the other hand, if you have been inflicted with suffering and you have called upon God in Jesus Christ for rescue from your own sin, then we must remember that our Savior more than knows your pain and is with you. He is the only blameless person who ever lived and yet suffered tremendously because of others' sin. As Hebrews 4 says, our high priest can empathize with us in every way apart from sin. Christ knows your suffering He knows it as his own people nailed him to a shame-ridden execution block despite his perfect love for them. And so the simple finale here is Jesus Christ who entered the world to rescue sinners he died to take our sin but he lives to give you life so let's run now to that savior to receive it let's pray Father God we know the wickedness of this world is complex and we hate it And we find ourselves in these situations that should be straightforward and yet can be confusing. And we know that there are times when we are deeply wronged and when we are not even directly to blame for what this person does to us. And yet we see with David that times like that forced him to consider his own unrighteousness in your presence. And so, God, we ask for wisdom for ourselves at each individual level. We ask for wisdom as a church as we look to help those around us to be able to assess well where we ourselves sin and how not to shift blame for the things for which we are responsible to repent, and yet also to confront wickedness unflinchingly. We long not to side real evil that people do to each other and to uphold justice and righteousness and not to further injure those who are suffering. And so we pray for your help. God, we pray for wisdom in our daily life. We pray 
as we go to work, if these things are there. We pray in our homes and families, if there are these immensely grievous situations, God, we pray for rescue in so many ways. We pray for the salvation of souls, that they would turn away from their wickedness. And we pray for help to know how to help those who are being afflicted. And ultimately, we pray that you would drive us to Christ, that we would find freedom and forgiveness there. We pray these things in his name, for his sake. Amen.